Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. is hard to find and you got lucky baby when i found the stick to wrestling podcast i want to thank tom petty and the heartbreakers for writing that song about their favorite podcast stick to wrestling it is the only wicked good podcast out there it is the people's podcast this podcast is like a match that would sell out any arena throughout the world before we get started i want to encourage everyone follow me on twitter just Search for John McAdam and follow the guys who has chair fighting going on in his avatar. You also really, really want to join the Facebook group because this episode is going to be about a question that got asked in the Facebook group. I liked it so much that I figured, hey, I'll have a show about this. So you want to get on Facebook, search Stick to Wrestling and join up. I say this about once a month. I don't like Facebook. It is a hate machine. It's a hell site. And I I don't blame anyone for not signing up to it. So do what I do. Sign up for Facebook and lie to your family and friends and tell them that you don't use it and only use it for the Sick to Wrestling podcast. Also, before I get started, this show was originally going to be two different segments. Michael Moore was part of the live audience at WrestleMania X7, and I wanted to have him on to describe that experience. Uh, I reached out to him today. And he said that he was in the ER with his son. His son had suffered a a hand injury with a couple of broken fingers. I want to wish his son all the best. I also want to wish Michael all the best as far as not going bankrupt, having to bring his son to the hospital. Uh, And we will have Michael on in the near future talking about his experience at WrestleMania X7. But instead, it's going to be one segment. It is going to be the return of an outstanding guest, John Janst. Thank you for giving us the time. Well, thank you for inviting me back. And uh, may I also say uh, my best wishes to uh, Michael and his son and for a full and speedy recovery. Amen. John, you were on, I want to say, about two and a half months ago. And before we got on, you said you wanted to clarify a couple of things that you said on the show. And then there's something what I think sounds really cool that you want to share with us. Well, thank you. One thing about the um, Ivan Koloff victory over Bruno at the Garden, and and I constantly hear the references to, well, you know, there was going to be a riot. There was going to be a riot. Well, when you're thinking at the time that it happened, of course, that's going to be the first reaction you're going to get. Wow. Are are the fans going to riot or, oh, they're going to be upset. From my vantage point up in the nosebleed seats as I was watching it again, the the crowd just went silent. They were stunned, and they were pretty much in their seats, and I saw no movement. So anyone down on the ground or near ringside saying, well, the crowd was, you know, ready to... No, no, that that wasn't happening. It also was that uh, in the booking and and call-offs, wisdom and uh, Vince's uh, seniors booking, uh, they simply announced, you know, the winner, Ivan Koloff, not rubbing it in the winner and new champion. And Koloff was not stalking around the ring, making gestures, telling up the crowd. He was fairly patient. I mean, all eyes were still on Bruno and Skoland, but uh, 
Koloff was not doing anything to rile things up, and they got him out of the ring quick enough. So I just uh, wanted to clarify that a little. Yeah, I'm sure people were worried about it, but there was not going to be a riot. Fans were way too stunned by what they had seen to act like that. And then that makes sense, although I would have, if I were Vince Sr., I absolutely would have told Koloff, grab the belt and head straight to the dressing room. And, you know, as he did, I heard that they did the same thing in Philadelphia when when Pedro lost the belt. Well, they did not give him the belt. Oh. Koloff did not get the belt. He did not walk out with it. That that's smart to be to be honest with you. Yeah, he wasn't announced as the he was simply announced as the winner. He was not given the belt. He was just escorted out. That was it. The same thing I think happened with it. now. Now here's something I've always wanted to know about the Stasiak Pedro title change. Who was announced as the winner of that match on site in Philly? I doubt if they announced the Stasiak. What I heard. Do we know of any witnesses who were there who can actually tell us who was actually announced? What I have always heard was that they, you know, Stasiak got the pin. He went straight to the dressing room. They got on the mic and they said, let's hear it for Pedro Morales. They didn't even announce Stasiak as the winner. Wow. You got to be careful. (laughs) Oh, oh, absolutely. And you'll notice that something interesting when I was thinking about all this. Uh, did you notice that Pedro won and lost the title on the same type of pin? And that uh, superstar Graham also won and lost the title with his foot on the ropes? I, I've, so, I did not hear that Pedro had his foot or, or that Stasiak had his feet on the ropes. No, no, no. Uh, that that uh, when Stasiak uh, beat Pedro, he did it the same way Pedro beat Koloff. Oh, wow. No, I did not know that. A little bit of irony there. Yeah. 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 I always thought that they had Backlund or when Backlund won the title, they had Graham have his foot on the ropes just to pour a little bit of irony on the way Graham won the title when he used the ropes for leverage. Yes. Yes. Uh, But, you know, same ironic finishes uh, in both scenarios. Yeah. Hey, now you have a letter that you would like to read that someone sent you. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> this, um, this sounds really good. One of my pen pals, this, this regards the Bruno Stasiak um, title change, December 1973 at the Garden. As a background, the Olympic Auditorium in L.A. used to have a Wednesday night card, which would be televised on delay in the New York market about two weeks later. And on every Wednesday night card, Jimmy Lennon would announce of the main event matches at the next upcoming Madison Square Garden show. Now, this is a letter I received, uh, which was dated December 13th. Uh, 73? And it, and it says, on Tuesday, I got letters from so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so, all telling me that Bruno won the title and meets Don Leo Jonathan next January 14th. They said it was announced by Jimmy Lennon on December 5th in Los Angeles. And all three letters were postmarked the 8th. And we say wrestling isn't fixed. That was from my pen pal, Dave Meltzer. <laughs> so they, he got three letters saying that, that Bruno was winning the belt days before Bruno actually won the belt. Exactly. Yes, that he would be defending the belt 
he hadn't won yet <laughs> at the January card. Now, to your knowledge, did, did they just figure it out or did something leak? Uh, no, that, that was deliberate. I, I guess back in those days, they didn't expect the beginnings of the newsletters and pen pals exchanging this kind of information. So when we saw it in, in the New York market, it just seemed like, oh, yeah, of course, Bruno won it the other night. So, of course, they're going to announce this. That's Not only- knowing that it was taped two weeks before. <laughs> that's too funny. Oh, my God. That is too funny. And, you know, and that's the thing. People say that, you know, XYZ exposed the business and ruined wrestling. Like, you know, they'll point at Vince Russo or whatever. The Internet exposed wrestling because as soon as wrestling fans got together and they had this thing, the Internet, where we could actually exchange information, the business being closed was over and done with. Yes, yes, absolutely. But before that happened, there were pen pals and Mm -hmm. uh, information was being exchanged. Yeah, and after that came the newsletters, and I would say, what, 5,000 people got the Observer and the Torch and everything else combined? That's just a guess. I have no idea. And, you know, that doesn't expose the business. It doesn't matter. That's a tiny, tiny percentage of wrestling fans, but everyone was on the internet, and everyone had questions, and I was one of the guys answering them. So, <laughs> no, that, but that's really cool, though, that you have that background. Yeah, the, you know, the rumor mills were always going around outside Madison Square Garden every month by the uh, parking garage where some of the wrestlers would be driving in and out. There would always be a crowd afterwards waiting for autographs or anything. Yep. And I would stand out there because back then you, you just want to pick up any bit of information you can. And like half the stuff was true, half the stuff was all BS, but, but you always learned something that was going on so because we were desperate for information i mean the same thing happened when i used to go to the boston garden early uh, right before tickets went on sale there would be a line of guys you know exchanging information some of it true some of it false you know my favorite was brutus beefcake is hulk hogan's brother and i believed it <laughs> and i learned four <laughs> four years later that he wasn't <laughs> um, oh yeah <laughs> That was a very hot rumor at the time, yes. Yeah. And so anyway, the the basis of the show is a question that came from our Facebook group. It is from Lazlo Takas, and I hope I pronounced that correctly. If I did not, I apologize. What if Bruno Sammartino didn't ever want to slow down? What if he had Ric Flairitis and wanted to to remain a full-time participant of in-ring action? Now, let me explain what Ric Flairitis to me is. Ric Flair is a guy who could not walk away from the business. He was a full-time wrestler for the most part until he was 59 years old when he had that WrestleMania match in 2008 with Shawn Michaels. He actually did very little after that. I think he wrestled a total of like 10 matches in 2009 through 2011. So he, for the most part, retired, but he was full-time in the business throughout his 50s. He he wrestled very little in 19, excuse me, in 2001 because of his WCW contract and an injury. But after that, I mean, I looked through the Ric Flair record book. He was as full-time as anyone out there. And the question is, what if Bruno Sammartino had that chip inside his head where he could not walk away? Where, uh, for example, I heard a long time ago, Ric Flair took six weeks off 
1989 uh, between you know getting pile driven by Terry Funk and the Baltimore Bash pay-per-view. And I heard a long time ago, by the end of that six weeks, he was going absolutely crazy. He needed to be back on the road, back part of the game. So our question is, what if Bruno Sammartino was also like that? But I'm going to ask you, John, before we start, in your opinion, did Bruno actually have a little bit of Ric Flairitis in him? I really do not believe so. Because you look at what happened after his injury to Hanson. He basically went to Vince Sr. and said, look, I don't want this anymore. Even when, um, when Vince came to him, when, you know, the Morales reign was nearing an end, and uh, he said, look, we want you back. What did Bruno do? He demanded more money and fewer days. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't think Bruno ever really had it. I, I think he really was the humble person that, he always portrayed himself as uh, not a bit of ego, which which is why this was a very interesting question to ask. Uh, extremely bizarro. I I love the concept. It, <laughs> yeah, what if Bruno wasn't Bruno? Uh, yeah, if Bruno wasn't Bruno, I uh, to be honest with you, I I still can't wrap myself around that. Having grown up with Bruno since the time I could walk. Yeah, I actually I would have said. If someone asked me, did Bruno have a little bit? I would have said, yeah, a little bit, because he was wrestling in 85, 86, and 87. And wow, that's long after his retirement. He was already, you know, by the time he quit, he was in his 50s. And I did some research a couple of hours before we started recording. Like, it was the first time I asked myself the question. And I just learned this today, okay? I was shocked how little Bruno wrestled after losing the title to superstar Billy Graham. He went around the horn against Graham, you know, but just in the major cities, just in New York, Boston, Pittsburgh, etc. For the most part, after losing the title, he was staying home. Bruno had in 1978, he made a little bit of a comeback. Well, he, he more or less disappeared after losing the title to excuse me, after Backlund won the title. He wrestled a total of 12 matches in 1978, or at least that's what we have on record. 12 matches all year. 1979, he wrestled 36 total matches the entire year. Bruno was very active in Boston. So if he was going to wrestle, I don't know, he wrestled Pat Patterson in Boston. I think they had two or three matches. So Bruno was on TV every week talking about what he was going to do to Pat Patterson. So I had no idea. Like, this is the only wrestling he's doing, practically. 1980, he has the big feud with Larry Zbysko, right? So you figure Bruno's pretty active in 1980, 33 total matches on record. So Mm -hmm. he's either wrestling Zabisco in a big city or he's back at home in Pittsburgh with his feet up on the couch. 1981, again, I thought he was a lot more active than he was. 20 matches, including his retirement match, October 81 against George Steele, and then two matches after that in Japan. Why does someone fly to Japan for two matches? I have no idea. That's a long trip. No matches at all in 82, 83, and 84. Then in 85, I'm thinking, okay, well, he's part of their tour. No, he wrestled a few dozen appearances, mostly teaming with David Sammartino in the Northeast. 86, well, he's doing main events in Boston and New York, right? 12 total matches, all in the Northeast, except for WrestleMania, the WrestleMania Battle Royal in Chicago. 
87, he, he wrestled the main event in Boston. So I figured, okay, he's pretty active. 17 matches total, only three outside of the Northeast. And when he teamed with uh, Hulk Hogan against One Man Gang and I think King Kong Bundy in Baltimore, August 87, that was it. He did not wrestle again. So he definitely did not have Ric Flairitis. That is very impressive research. I, I, I saw when I was looking over some notes, I think between the time he had the series with Graham after he lost the title at the Garden, he wasn't back at MSG for 18 months. Mm-hmm. It took about eight. To, so, yeah, he did not appear much. And I would say maybe in the mid 80s, he came back mostly to try to push uh, David. At some point, it was in support of David. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Bruno was clearly in control. He's the guy who built the WWF. You wouldn't have had it without him. No. And uh, he knew when he came back in 73, um, he basically gave his demands to Vince Sr. And, and Sr. took it. He could have stayed with it as long as he wanted, as far as I, as far as I could see. But when he got injured, I think he, he even realized. And look, you know, in retirement, it doesn't hurt to work 13 dates in a year and make a little extra money. So, uh, oh, and I'm it, sure he was paid handsomely for every one of those appearances. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I'm sure. You know, you you just mentioned the research that I did. I just read something that the late Jim Zordani, known as the Clawmaster, put together on one of his websites. So, I mean, he's not around for me to thank, but I want to credit him at least because he, he's the one that did all the work. I just read what he wrote. All right. So Lazlo asks, specifically, what would this have meant to superstar Billy Graham and Bob Backlund's WWF careers? Let's start with superstar Billy Graham. John, what do you think his career would have been like had Bruno kept the title through, I mean, let's say whatever, whatever year, but Billy does not get the title in 77. Okay. I, the way I figured it out when, um, senior went to Billy Graham to sign him up to come into the Federation. He said, you know, you're going to get the matches with Bruno at some point you're going to win. And then seven months later, you're going to drop it to backland. Well, Graham, of course, was bitter because, as we all surmise, he, he easily could have stayed on, but, but Vince kept his word. I say that Vince would have invited him in for a very lengthy stay, but he would not have promised him the title. However, he would have fought Bruno, uh, what was it, uh, when he first fought him, about 76 or 77. It was 77 when he won the title. Then, yep. of course, uh, he would stay around as a heel, get some matches, get another run with Bruno the following year. And then the way I see it played out, he would be in a tag match with Ivan Koloff, who he often tagged with, or with Peter Maivia, who was a red-hot heel at the time, and one of them turns on him. And from there, Billy Graham begins a face run which would take him about a year. So the way I see it, uh, Graham would have been around in the Federation longer. He just wouldn't have had the title. And I think Billy would have been pretty happy because his body was breaking down at that point anyway. And he would have had a nice, uh, a very nice long run and gone out as a fan favorite. That's, that's the way I looked at it. I, I don't even think 
he would have returned with the karate gimmick a couple years later. I was 12 years old when Backlund beat Graham for the title. And I said, I knew nothing about wrestling other than what I saw on TV and what I read in the magazines. And I was openly wondering, you know, okay, when are they going to turn superstar Billy Graham into a good guy? You know, he would be a draw, especially, you know, you could run two towns a night. And what I had heard over time is that Vince senior just wanted him out of there. They had had some problems with him, his reliability and supposedly Vince senior didn't just didn't want to do it. He just wanted to let superstar Billy Graham be on his way, even though he was in the WWF for a long time after he lost the title by a long time. I mean, like another seven or eight months, but I mean, that's, that's one thing that I think, you know, might not have happened because I've, I have heard Vince senior didn't want it. Well, I kind of think that that may be the case because Graham's wrestling at the time, knowing that on February, whatever, 1978, he's going to drop the title. So of course he'd be, you know, trying to get him to change his mind, being more cantankerous, being more difficult because he's trying to get Vince to change his mind on that. Uh, I think if, if he brought him in without the lure of the title, but with like, I'm going to have you here, especially when he starts becoming sort of underground fan favorite and they see that a turn for the positive would be in the works, you know, a two or three year run. I think Graham would have been satisfied. I think he would have been too. And I I think that he would have been successful, but you know, like I said, number one, I mean, again, Vince senior, you know, was, was wanted. Vince Sr. wanted a guy like Bob Backlund who wasn't going to argue about money like Bruno did, like superstar Billy Graham did. But, you know, I agree. Had I I see superstar Billy Graham's point, because why are you changing what is working so well? He saw when he defended the title, he sold out Madison Square Garden every single time except once against Peter Maivia. Mm hmm. Yeah, but. Again, you know, Vince, Vince senior wanted who he wanted. I think at the end of the day, he had to have been happy with Backlund. Of Vince senior. Uh, yes. Well, both, both Vince junior and senior. Oh, absolutely. With Bob Backlund, when you talk to the average person, they think of him as the guy with the crew cut and the singlet and the Harvard step test. (laughs) Well, the Backlund before that was a phenomenal wrestler. He got great matches from people you wouldn't expect to have great matches. And uh, it was as close to watching actual wrestling in a lot of cases in a main event at Madison Square Garden. So it took a year for them to get Bob Backlund in place. And I think he absolutely was a tremendous champion. I I do not downgrade. The only problem was he was champ for about a year too long. It felt like that. It felt like he was he was champ for about a year too long. Snook ahead had overtaken his popularity, and I yeah. think people were getting sick of Backlund. We'll get more to that soon. Superstar Billy Graham is in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame, and I think he belongs, even though I think he's on a very low tier of that. I mean, someone's got to be the weakest guy in the Hall of Fame, and maybe Graham has an argument for that, but I, I think he belongs in because I mean, he only had, in my opinion, two or three real Hall of Fame years. Definitely 76, absolutely 77. You know, that might have been the best year any wrestler had in the 70s. 
and maybe 78, and that's it. But he had such a – what's the word I'm looking for? He had such an influence on the business. Like half the guys getting into wrestling wanted to be superstar Billy Graham in the 70s. Absolutely. Uh, whether it came to his mic skills, actually very, very much his mic skills, and, and his look. We're not talking about his ring performance because he sucked in the ring. But he had the charisma. He put fans into the seat, and um, they walked out there hating him. And, and I totally agree with him being in, in any wrestling hall of fame. Absolutely. Because, and, and also, as you said, his drawing power, yeah. whether he was the challenger to Bruno or Backlund, and as champion, that's impressive. I agree. And I'll say this, though. Had Graham not gotten the belt, had Bruno you know, retained the title through 1978, I mean, superstar Billy Graham wouldn't even be in consideration for the Hall of Fame if he didn't have that magic 1977. I agree. I think it's the title, the luster of the title that uh, gives him the edge. Yeah, if he had been there under my scenario as just a challenger for about two years to Bruno, two different series over two, three years. And then turning face, uh, well, I think he did play an influence. He, yeah. he was a very influential wrestler, uh, but think, he'd be on the cusp at that point. I think the title gives him the edge. Yeah, oh, definitely. I mean, that, that's what got him in. And, you know, like I said, I think he belongs, but without that run, he's, he's nowhere close. Um, I think what would have happened with superstar Billy Graham, I mean, he had that fantastic series against Bruno in early 1976. I think they would have brought him back at more like 1978 than 1977. It felt like when he came back in 1977, I think it was March 1977, I first saw him on TV. No, it had to be February because I was in New York for, for a school vacation. I was like, wow, he, he was just here and he's, he's already back. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I, I, I think he would have been a big star. Like maybe he would have won the United States title in the Carolinas or he would have gone back to Florida and gotten a big push there, maybe Georgia. But, and I think, you know, he would have gotten out too, maybe when he started breaking down physically in 78 or 79. But I want to ask you this, John, do you think maybe, I mean, superstar Billy Graham cited burnout for him basically being out of the business from the time he left the WWF in the uh, late 78 until he came back summer of 82. He wrestled a little bit barely. I mean, do you think had he not, the title, maybe he wouldn't have burned out so bad. He wouldn't have had the type of schedule with all the uh, title matches that he would have had to do and all the appearances as a champion. It would have been a slightly lighter workload. And again, when, when you're going in now as a fan favorite, that also helps psychologically when you're preparing and performing in a match and what you're going to do in a match, mm. because it's basically the heel that's running things or calling the shots. So uh, I, I think the face turn would have given him a little more longevity. So that's why I think a three-year run without the belt would have been what Vince would have offered him. And I think Billy would have, would have left the business a lot happier and with less um, bitterness. Yeah, I mean, Billy, you know, towards the end of his career, he could, I mean, he could barely walk. I mean, there was no way when he retired, he retired because he had to retire. They didn't even you know, okay, let's have him finish up at the 1987 Survivor Series. It's like, no, Billy's done. He, can bear, he can't move. I don't know what was worse, watching Billy Graham in the ring 
or Butch Reed against him in the ring, what they had done to Butch Reed at that point. Graham just was, even as a manager to Morocco, I mean, what a waste. What a yeah, shame. It, I, I saw him three years later, and he had to walk with a walker. So that's how, how in bad shape he was. I mean, it was, it was a combination of a lot of things. John, what do you think would have happened to Bob Backlund's career had Bruno not dropped the title? I don't think he would have had a WWF career as, as I was trying to figure it out at that time. We know that he was popping around in different territories in the NWA. I believe he was under consideration by some of the promoters as a potential champion in the NWA. I don't know. I certainly, it wouldn't have been a three or four year run, but he certainly would have had it for at least a year. I know the Funks were very much in his corner and uh, several of the other promoters. But I think about that time when he also had a young daughter and everything, I thought the natural fit for him at that time would have been the AWA. I mean, Minneapolis is the home base. I think that at the time they had gotten stagnant with, uh, you know, trading between Bachwinkle and uh, Vern Gagne. So for some reason, I think that Backlund would have wound up in the AWA. Now, before he went there, he might have done one or two appearances, you know, guest shots at Madison Square Garden like uh, a few other wrestlers had done. But I, I just am pretty much sure he would have become an AWA champion and pretty long term. You're thinking what I'm thinking. Um, I think that... Really? Yeah, I think Bob, I mean, he grew up in the Midwest. He was he was trained by the Funks, but I mean, he had a run in the AWA prior to going to the WWF. I could see him being the AWA champion and settling down, buying a house, you know, raising his family. And I'm going somewhere with this. I could also see him being an NWA champion, especially late 70s, because if Sam Mushnick and Eddie Graham are specifically recommending Bob Backlund to Vince Sr. as their pick to be WWF champion. I mean, why not make him NWA champion? One thing I don't think Bob Backlund would have done, Bob Backlund had a lifestyle in the WWF. He had the lifestyle that he wanted. He lived somewhere in Connecticut. Uh, He made a lot of money, and he could be home most of the time uh, to be with his wife and his daughter. Mm -hmm. I don't think Bob Backlund would have been one of those guys who jumped from territory to territory and moved his family every nine months, every 12 months, whatever. I think if he hadn't gotten the kind of gig that he wound up getting, I think he would have gotten out of the wrestling business and he would have become like a high school wrestling coach. I totally agree. I I also agree with what you said before about being an NWA champion. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I think that would have come first. I think that his opportunity would have been about the time he became WWF champ. I think certainly between 77 and 80 or so, they might have given him a tryout for a few months. Some promoter would have done that. But yeah, I think in his really excellent book, uh, Autobiography, He stressed uh, the importance of family to him, and I think that um, Vern, as he said, having the hometown boy coming back to be your champ, and um, Vern tended to want to go with the long-term person. I know 
it didn't develop that way after about 83 or so, but um, I, I think Backlund certainly would have been champ at least uh, during uh, Bachwinkle. And, well, when was Bachwinkle champ? From Virtually from 75 all the way through till about 82. So I, I could see... I could see uh, Backlund being in that position till maybe about eighty-five or so, and yeah, and and then you're right, yeah, be a, be a high school wrestling coach. Yeah, I, you know, Bob Backlund. In some ways, I think he would have been a really good NWA champion because he was a lot like Jack Briscoe, a lot like yes. Jack Briscoe. And Absolutely. Yep. Briscoe knew how to play subtle heel when he had to. I wonder if Bob Backlund could have done that. No, see that that would be the weakness for Backlund. He just, as we remember from the notorious uh, Billy Graham tearing up the championship belt episode, mm-hmm. uh, Backlund was not good at histrionics in any way or portraying a heel. I, it would have been as natural as when you saw him as Mister Backlund when he came back to the WWF. Right. Uh, I don't think it would have worked that well. And once again, we get back to the schedule. Jack Briscoe gave up the NWA title because he couldn't stand the schedule anymore. Terry Funk, a year later, did the same thing. And Terry was only champion for about 15 months. So Mm -hmm. I don't think Bob would have wanted to do that, especially, you know, into the 80s as his as his daughter's growing up. Yeah, that's why I think he would have held the title for maybe six months or during that period when people were getting like short reigns. So I think six months to one year at the most. Yeah. Then I think he would have hightailed it to the uh, AWA, but WWF was not a backland territory. And again, they wouldn't have uh, invested a year's time building him up uh, if he wasn't going to be a champion. And if Bruno was on top, then backland wasn't going to be the champion. So AWA was home. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, and one thing I want to mention too, Bob Backlund did not have Ric Flair-itis. I mean, he was when he was 35 years old, he basically got out of the game. Uh, yeah, definitely. Very, very humble person. I met him at a book signing um, at the local wrestling store about three years ago. And what a, what a really genuine, nice guy he was. It's just a little strange at points, but... He was really nice, very sincere. I also recommend Bob Backlund's autobiography. I have it. I've read it. To any wrestling fan, I would recommend it. But if if you grew up in the Bob Backlund era, I mean, it it was, wow. It was so informative. There was all kinds of stuff I did not know in there. One thing that led to the book that I want to talk about, up in Manchester, New Hampshire, there was a lawyer who just sent Bob Backlund like a fan letter. Wow, Bob, thank you for all the great memories. And Bob wrote him back. And he's like, and the lawyer said, look, I can help you write, write a book if you'd like. And bam, we have a book. out. I should reach out to that attorney. I, for, I forget what his name is and, and ask him if he wants to be on as a guest here. Wow. That that's fantastic. The one drawback to the book I found, I, I, I thought the book was fascinating in its honesty and its details. The one thing was though, after he loses the title of the sheik, the book pretty much ends. And, yes. And I was, Curious about his story after he lost the title. How how did he adjust? What was it like to be back with the family? What did you do in all those years? I wasn't that interested. And maybe how did Vince McMahon lure you back? And and that's not there. So hopefully he's working on a second book. 
That's 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 exactly how I felt about the book. The one thing I didn't like about it was it came to a screeching halt on December 26, 1983. And I would have liked to have read about, you know, Bob's side of the story as far as, you know, how he got pushed out of the WWF, you know, what it was like wrestling in Florida and the AWA and the adjustments he had to make. Yes, I, I, I agree. All right. When would the fans have gotten tired of Bruno Sammartino's act? John, you're from up here in the Northeast. I have, I have a feeling I know what you're going to say. Never. They just never would have gotten tired of it. They, he was on top for 11 years, and the fans didn't care. They never got tired of him. A lot of it was they just promoted, you know, the promotion. The, the WWF promotion was very simple. You trot out the, the villain for a couple months, they, they beat a few people, they get the title shot, and they go around the circuit. And, and it was a formula that always worked. Uh, some opponents were better than others. You know, th- there were a couple one and dones. I was looking at who Backlund faced, and most of them were people who would fit in just as easily against Bruno. I mean, yeah. you know Stan Hansen would have come back. I think Angela Mosca would have been a perfect fit. I saw Spiros Arion was a one and done. Now, Arion, I still say, was Bruno's best opponent during the second run. He definitely could have gotten a longer run. I think Bruno versus Don Morocco would have been a fantastic run. So I I think with all the fresh faces that he was bringing in, plus, you know, it, it was always good to see Bruno fight Tanaka every now and then or George Steele, not too much. The booking would have been good. But there's another thing I thought of, which you did not see in the Backland era that used to be common in the Bruno era. And it was another way to keep him fresh, I thought. And during the Bruno reigns, he would often appear maybe once or twice a year at Madison Square Garden in tag team matches. And it would be with Chief J. Strongbow or someone or another. And I thought that... um, Certainly when Peter Maivia was the face, I think him and Bruno would have been a great team, which would have added a lot of fire when Maivia turned heel later on. One person who I thought would have been a fantastic choice, the one person who turned heel without explanation, with, which I thought was an unsatisfying heel, was Victor Rivera. And I was starting to think, you know what, if Rivera was still coming back, bring him back as a face, have him team with Bruno, you know, the reunion of two longtime friends. Everybody loved Rivera in the 60s and 70s and have Victor turn heel against him in a tag match at the Garden or on TV. And I think that would have been a red-hot feud. So I think that the way they did booking there may not look creative in our time, but it worked. It brought big results, and even if you gave him a stinker of a main event every now and then, like Bulldog Brower or someone like that, you had a hot intercontinental title match. You had Pat Patterson working IC champ. You had Ken Pateri. You had Don Morocco. You could have Bruno tag with Pedro Morales when he came back. So I thought that was another way of keeping Bruno fresh. Keep him from getting too tired, have him working two or three tag matches every year at the garden. I was forcing Bruno in a lot of tag team programs. Ah, and there was one person that I think would have been an incredible tag team partner with him. 
a couple times at the Garden? Superstar Billy Graham. Mm -hmm. When Graham turned face, I think that teaming with Bruno a couple times at the Garden would have been magic. So besides my prejudice for Bruno, I just don't ever see him uh, losing his luster. I mean, a lot of low-hanging fruit for me here. My, what I have in my notes, okay, when would the fans have gotten tired of his hack? Three words, gonna say never, okay? So you and I have the same, same answer. For someone listening to this podcast who grew up in, I don't know, Los Angeles, uh, Chicago, Des Moines, I get that you might not get Bruno, okay? But right. out here... The guy was magic. And I'm talking up and down, you know, from south to Baltimore and Washington, north to Maine, west to Pittsburgh. The guy was over in every single city he appeared in. I don't think the fans would have ever gotten tired of Bruno. And I'll talk more about that later. But, John, you had mentioned that, like, they changed the formula a little bit. To me, it was the same formula. A heel comes in. And he's the top guy for a couple of months. And then Backlund beats him. The same thing, basically, they did with Bruno, except you're right. Looking at old Madison Square Garden, Boston Garden results, they eliminated the tag team matches. I think the last time Bruno main evented in a tag team match at Madison Square Garden was, I want to say, March 1976. It was him and Tony Parisi against superstar Billy Graham and Ivan Koloff. I believe, yes, I believe so. Right, right. Okay. That was 76. And then 77, he was, uh, that was after the injury then. So I think he was winding down at that point. Yeah, exactly. Spiros Arion did a one and done against Bob Backlund in 1978. I always thought that the reason they did that was because Arion came back right around the same time superstar Billy Graham came back in 1977. And it looked like, you know, he, Graham and George the Animal Steel were going to be the fresh new heels. And then Graham turns around and wins the belt. But Arion had already been in the WWF for a well over a year before he got that title match against Backlund. So he was kind of, I don't want to say stale, but I, I didn't see the need for two matches. Well, if the way I look at it, when, when Backlund had won the title from Graham, he then had the series with Graham at the Garden. And then you'll notice he had a one and done with Patera, who had been a real tough opponent for Bruno, and then a one and done with Arion. So I think part of it was to just get the new champ off the ground at the garden with two solid wins. But I tend to disagree regarding Arion because if you still listen to his interviews, even during that period of time, the guy was a heat machine. He yes. was just magic. And if you put him against Bruno, it didn't matter if he had been around for two years doing jobs, he would have sold out because Spiros Arion, much like, the way I envisioned a Victor Rivera turn, they were people who had spent their whole careers as good guys in the WWF. So when they turned heel, it was something special in a bad way. Whereas, you know, you'd get Peter Maivia or someone else, and they were here a few months and they turned. And yeah, you'd be mad, but you didn't have that connection. Arion had that connection and that connection with Bruno. So I would disagree. I, I think a, another feud with Arion would have, because it had been about, I think, three years since they last feuded at the Garden. And, and in fact, that was the first time the Felt Forum was used to televise Madison Square Garden shows. I was there at the Felt Forum for that. 
That's how hot Arion was. So um, we'll, we'll disagree. I, I, I think Arion would have been hot against Bruno at any time. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you on Spiros Arion. I mean, it, you know, here's my impression of me in 1980 and 1981. When is Spiros Arion coming back? <laughs> Why has he disappeared? But no, he, he moved to Australia, I think, and that was the end of it. But and one thing I wanted to talk about, too, you mentioned like, you know, there were strong challengers for Bob Backlund, like Morocco, Valentine, et cetera. And then you had some of the weaker ones like Brower, oh. Sweet Hansen, George the Animal <laughs> Steel. And even as a kid, I'm like, wow, it's Bob Backlund against Sweet Hansen. And Andre the Giant happens to be coming to town on this card. Like, I, even as a little kid, I figured that one out. Yeah, they, you'll notice uh, when... Um... I was looking at the challengers Bob Backlund had in 1980. <laughs> he fought Sika at one card and then Afa at the next card. But what was the semi-main event both months? Bruno versus Larry Zbysko. Yeah. So, and- so why did Backlund have to fight anybody strong? I, I could understand that. Yeah, so even same- as a kid I saw it. Yeah, so the same booking with Bruno. You, you could throw him a sweet Hanson or a Brower, or someone weak every now and then. Even Mr. Fuji and Saito. Uh, when you have an undercard with uh, Snuka versus Morocco, or, or Patterson versus Slaughter, yeah, so, uh, yeah, you could feed him some weak opponents. And yeah, a couple Pat- tag matches keeps him fresh for the big matches. Yeah, they had that red-hot feud between Sergeant Slaughter and Pat Patterson. My goodness, that was... 40 years ago, I'm getting old. And what do you know? It's Bob Backlund against Angelo Mosca on the top of the card. <laughs> Not a coincidence. <laughs> now, here's one other thing I want to ask you, John, before we move on from this question. When would the fans have gotten tired of Bruno's act? Jimmy Snuka came in 1982. So let's act like Bruno's still the champion. We have the Bruno versus Snuka feud. Would Snuka have gotten over, number one, uh, as much as a rogue babyface as he did versus Backlund? And number two, would Snuka eventually turning babyface, would that have hurt Bruno the way I think it hurt Backlund? Uh, no way. Not even in Philadelphia. All right. <laughs> Not even in Philly. All right. And number two, would you know? let's say Bruno is just in, in Backlund's shoes and they eventually turn Snuka. Would Snuka being the number, in theory, the number two baby face have hurt Bruno the way it hurt Backlund? I think it did hurt Bob Backlund. Uh, Oh, it absolutely did hurt Bob Backlund, but it wouldn't have hurt Bruno because you know what? I could see them both tag teaming with each other. Uh, I I could see Snuka as another person Bruno could have teamed with. Bruno was second to no one. And and as popular as, as Red Hot as Snuka would have gotten, uh, Bruno was still the old reliable. He was there. And sure, Snuka, Snuka's flame burned out pretty quickly, even as a good guy. So it would have lasted for a little while. But when the flame was gone, Bruno was there. So I, I definitely don't think it would have hurt him. And you're right. It really hurt. It, it was, in fact, I think, the first really shot in the armor for Bob Backlund that he was vulnerable. Yeah, I I agree with that. I think Snooker was the first vulnerability for Backlund 
and then came to sing Little Little Later. So uh, he was the beginning. So yeah, uh, and Bruno was wise enough to know some people are going to get their moments, but it'll all go back to Bruno. Okay. I mean, I guess what I was really saying is, in, in, maybe you had to be here to see it, Jimmy Snooker, when he turned babyface, he became the cool babyface, and Backlund kind of became the uncool babyface. You know, the Snooker turn and, you know, crying after superstar Billy Graham tore up his belt basically happened at the same time, like within a few weeks of each other. And I don't think it would have negatively had impacted Bruno the way it did Backlund. This is a point I'm trying to make. Now we get the big question, the really big question. John, in your opinion, what year would Vince finally grab the hook and try to move on from Bruno Sammartino, move him out of the spotlight? Now, Bruno could have gone on forever, but I think once, once Vince, uh, once Junior got control of the WWF in 82, uh, we know what his next plan was, was for expansion. And I think that at the same time, and, and how things could have been different if Bruno would have been on top, because you know what, this, this wouldn't have even played out because Backlund would have been AWA champion. So my next scenario wouldn't have even occurred. Now that I'm thinking about it. Oh, wow. Um, I think in 82, well, after uh, let's, when was it that Hogan was out here? 1980, and he had his run, and he certainly would have gotten Madison Square Garden runs uh, against Bruno. I mean that he he was a perfect Bruno opponent. Hogan went to the AWA. He did the successful Japanese tour, and I think that by about 82ish or so, I think even Hogan and 82 was also the time when Rocky Three came out. Mm-hmm. And Hogan suddenly become red hot. And I think that I'm sure Vince noticed him at that point. Uh, I think that's when he was getting Vince uh, Jr.'s attention. My theory is that by 82, even Jr. would have been a little annoyed with Bruno and his demand to stay on and stay on. Oh, oh and that was another thing that I think would have added to the longevity of Bruno was that by about 1980, you're now looking at him potentially breaking his seven-and-a-half-year record. So that would have been a whole series of matches leading up to that. And I've got a match for you that I think would have been the perfect match for him to have about the time that he was going to hit his seven-and-a-half-year mark. And it involves David Sammartino. How do you like that? So my theory is that about 82 or so, Junior would have been so disgusted, he would have started making uh, outreaches to Hogan, because it was clear at that point, Hogan wasn't getting the title from Bockwinkel. Didn't he have like that short, little, uh, fluky run with him and then had it reversed, I believe, by Stanley Blackburn? There was some sort of a decision where Hogan was declared the winner and then they overruled it. Anyway, I think beginning about 82, 83, uh, McMahon would have started making offers to Hogan. So I think Hogan, because again, Hogan was red hot. McMahon wanted to expand. So I think the, he would have given the hook around 83. My guess or my speculation would have been that Bruno Sammartino would have lost, finally lost the WWF championship 
on December 26th, 1983. The, you know, the same, he would have had the same deal as Bob Backlund where, okay, we've got this Hulk Hogan guy signed under contract. We got to put the, put the title on him really as quickly as possible. And once again, you know, I, I talked about, I get it. If you're from Los Angeles or Des Moines or Chicago, like you might not get Bruno. I also get that Bruno would not have been a guy you you wanted to have as your your top guy if you want to promote in Los Angeles, if you want to promote in Houston, if you want to promote in Chicago, you can't do it with Bruno. I mean, as big a Bruno fan as I am, as much as I like him, my understanding is like when he went to places like St. Louis and Indianapolis, you know, people were like, this guy's not any good. Oh, I, I, I totally agree. Uh, the, the only area I would disagree that perhaps the December 26th title change was the first opportunity Vince had to um, yank Bruno out, or maybe at that point, that's when he had Hogan under contract. I think he would have tried to get him sooner, but I do think that uh, though sentimentality is not big on Vince's uh characteristics i think instead of the iron sheik i i would have thought for some reason who would have beaten bruno and for me for some reason i keep thinking don morocco i think they would have made that match and um it wouldn't have been a last minute we're going to switch the title thing they're going to say bruno look your time is up i don't care what We've given you 17 years on top, 20 years on top, and we're going in a new direction. Yeah. You're not going to like where we're going. And I just have a feeling Vince would have done that for him, especially since without Bruno, they wouldn't have been in that position. No. So I kind of think he would have given him a classier send-off than what Bob Backlund got. Bob Backlund... He seemed to remain over after Hogan got there in New York. I recently saw a, I think it was March 1984 match where he wrestled Greg Valentine and he seemed very over. At the same time, I can tell you he was getting a lot of booze in Boston. And I mean a lot. And I saw a match in, uh, from Philadelphia. It was one of his, I think it was his last match in the WWF. It was Backlund against Salvatore Belomo, and the boos oh were God. just raging through my speaker. Well, maybe they were just booing at the match. <laughs> uh, I, the match was awful, but they, they were booing Backlund before the match started. And here's, here's oh, my yeah. question to you. Let's say Bruno lost the title December 1983, and when it happened, Hogan came in. The fans embraced Hogan. I mean... Hogan's first appearance in the Boston Garden as a babyface. I've told the story before. There were thousands of people outside of the building begging to buy tickets. It was nuts. It was a complete sellout. Would the fans, especially in the Northeast, would they have embraced Hogan the way they did if Hogan had replaced Bruno instead of Backlund? I think the same thing would have happened because I think at that point, people love Bruno, but even they would say, you know, this is 20 years now. This is a pretty long time. Uh, it's time for a change. And I think Hogan brought with him the aura of change and the popularity from Rocky II and all the charisma he was bringing. And even though Backlund 
was still popular in many cities besides Boston and Philly. Uh, once Hogan came in, Backlund seemed to disappear in, you know, out of sight, out of mind. And I think that after all that time on top, people would have moved on and, yeah. and, and not out of disrespect. It was just, everybody knew it would still be time for a change, but he didn't want to see Bruno go. Hogan is something that he's a different character and uh, something totally different. And I think, uh, I think the fans would have embraced Hogan regardless. And I think possibly Bruno might have um, been out there to give him the belt or put a little shine on him. Maybe not. He might've been a little bitter leaving if he had Ric Flairitis <laughs> being told that he had to leave. He had no choice. But no, I, I I don't think there would have been any difference. I think Hogan would have gotten over really big regardless. I think if, if Bruno had Ric Flair-itis, I think we could we could have told him, look, you know, Bruno, you're almost 50 years old. I mean, we, we have to make a change at the top, but you're still our number two guy. I mean, and, and they would have had a really strong number two in Bruno San Martino, especially, once again, especially in the Northeast. Yes, totally agree. That, that That's what my scenario was, that... Okay. He'd still be around as a number two, and he'd team with Hogan and do all kinds of stuff. And yeah, yes. he'd, he'd definitely be the number two guy. I'll tell you what: if if he had Ric Flairitis and he retired at the age of fifty nine, he would have been still wrestling into the mid nineties. That's kind of a scary thought. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh man! And now one last question as we wrap up. How would this have impacted David Sammartino's career? John, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, since you asked, that actually ties into something I hinted at before about Bruno's uh, breaking his record the second time. Now, about, what was it? I think David started wrestling about 1980. And yeah, I believe so. Time, and that was about the time of the Bruno Zabisco series. So... Here's the way I was plotting it out. Uh, and, uh, with I'm not quite Baldrin the Booker, but uh, I'll be Jance the Booker for, for a few minutes. David does his year of working independence, 1980. You don't expect him to be in the big time quite yet. And about 1981, when Bruno's now entering his seventh year as champ, Bruno comes out to taping, does an interview. I'm a proud father. I'm very proud of my son, David. He's going to be uh, making his wrestling debut this week. And I'm really happy to see this. And I hope the fans support him. So David appears and um, goes against some jobber. Bruno pulls up a chair at ringside, watches the match, and he's nodding approvingly. And they interview both of them after the match. And all's well and good. Next week comes, and uh, David's going to do another preliminary match. So during the match, Bruno sits down at ringside, and then Larry Zbysko comes out, starts talking to Bruno. So Vince comes over and says, uh, Larry, what's, what's going on? And he says, well, you know, Bruno was my mentor, and um, he was my role model, and it would really be an honor for me if I could watch the match. Uh, with Bruno and give David some advice after. And Bruno shakes his hand, says, oh, that's how wonderful. They hug. They both watch the match. The match is over. David wins. They walk back out of the arena, all three of them talking, smiling. Everything's good. 
Third week, same thing happens. Bruno and Larry are watching the match. David wins. They all walk back. Okay, next set of tapings now comes. And when they're beginning the announcement, Larry comes out. Oh, David's about to have his match. So Larry comes out to Bruno, says, Bruno, you know, everything that you've taught me and all that, and I've noticed a few things with uh, David, is, is it okay if I do a, a little five-minute exhibition with uh, David? He says, fine, you know, it would be wonderful. So they do a little five-minute exhibition, uh, Larry against David, and David, of course, is um, uh, breaking, you know, getting out of every hole Larry puts on. Not embarrassing him as flagrantly as Bruno did, but he's still, you know, getting out of every hold. And just as the bell's about to ring, David's got him in a roll-up and almost pins him. Well, they shake hand after. They walk back to the dressing room together. And during the next two weeks or so, Larry Zbysko has his matches. And he's doing his matches. And during the commentary... Vince is needling him uh, quite a bit. He's saying, well, you know, Larry's really uh, needs to prove signed himself after what happened uh, against David uh, a few weeks ago. So Larry does, uh, when the second match is over, Larry does an interview. And then we begin the scenario with Bruno where Larry says, I, you know, really like to work out, you know, do the match with you. I really need to prove something to myself. And voila, there's the whole thing. All coinciding also with Larry is now going to want to prevent uh, Bruno from reaching seven and a half years as champion. So that adds further luster to the feud. Now, in the meantime, David goes back to uh, the independent circuit. Every now and then he'll appear at Masters Square Garden in a tag team match with his father, but um, he'll be under wraps until about, well, by Bruno's thinking, about 83, 84, 85. And since Bruno's still number two, they, they bring back David uh, in whatever capacity he had when he eventually came back. So I think that would have been the only difference. I think that David would have made his debut as a forerunner to the Bruno-Larry feud. That's the way I saw it. You know, it's interesting. One thing I had written down was maybe bring back Larry Zbysko, turn him babyface, which I think was on the, the drawing board at some point, and have a Larry Zbysko and David Sammartino tag team. I, I, once again, I'm talking you know, the difference between the Northeast and everywhere else. If they had not changed the formula and they had brought, you know, if Bruno didn't have his falling out with Vince Jr., which, you know, lasted from like 82 until he came back in the beginning of 85, you know, if, if that feud had not been taking place, I think David would have come in here. And despite his lack of height, despite the fact that he was never that good in the ring, I think he, he would have gotten over in the Northeast just because he was he was Bruno's kid. Yeah, well, exactly. That's what happened even when he got there, that the fans tolerated what they were saying only because he was Bruno's kid. So, yeah, he could have come back uh, sooner and uh, he could have feuded with Larry or he could have tagged with Larry. So I, I they both had very similar styles. So I think that would have worked. And, and as long as Bruno was number two, there would be a role for uh, David. Yeah. I, I totally think just on name value alone, 
had you know Vince non- not gone national or if David had come in like 82, 83, he would have been a hit up here in the Northeast. Final question. Uh, one thing, this, one thing, oh, sorry, yeah. John, as you've said several times, it, it's pretty impossible for someone not in the WWF region to even fathom that when they've seen David San Martino. But, but in the WWF, I mean, it, it, it was a natural, yes. It, exactly. I mean, I don't know how many uh, college basketball fans we have out there, but like, you know, there are some programs, it's like, hey, it's Kentucky, it's North Carolina, <laughs> it's Kansas, it's Bruno's kid. It's that simple. <laughs> exactly. Now, one last question before we sign off. This has been a really good show. Thank you, John. Do you think it would have hurt Bruno with fans knowing that he was old enough to have an adult son in the wrestling business? No, no. The the, the people knew that Bruno was old. Uh, People saw him, and and he was slowing down anyhow, even during the second reign. No, even even when he came back in the 80s, it it didn't matter. Uh, When Bruno entered the ring, it was Bruno. Whether it was a 50-year-old or a 40-year-old, he was still... I don't think his age would have made a difference. It, 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 he was really that unique to the business. It's it's incomprehensible to someone who didn't grow up with him. I know people watching his videos nowadays will look and say, "Well, what was there to him? What was it about him?" And and it's uh, it's just indescribable. I I completely agree. And my answer ultimately was no. I mean, back then. We had no way of knowing how old any of the wrestlers were. When I first got uh, one of Dave Meltzer's books in 1987, I was taken aback by how old some of these guys were. And it, it just didn't matter. At the end of the day, I said no. And I also said that it didn't seem to hurt Vern Gagne, and it didn't seem to hurt Fritz von Erich, and it definitely didn't seem to hurt Eddie Graham. No, absolutely. That is a, an excellent point. Yes. John, I, mean, I there, want to... No denying he's getting old. So, yeah. Yeah. It's wrestling. It's just a a different world than, you know, the NFL or Major League Baseball. John, I want to thank you once again. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to paraphrase what Hillary Clinton once said. It's it's a willing suspension of disbelief. And that is what pro wrestling is in a nutshell. John, I want to thank you for coming on once again. Especially, you know, after you were on pretty recently, it was another excellent episode. Thank you, sir. Well, it it was my pleasure. I I appreciate the invite and um, thank you very much for your great podcast. Thank you, sir. I want to invite everybody, as I did last week, to if you haven't heard the 605 baseball podcast, uh, it's called Opening Day Star Wars. I haven't listened to the whole thing yet. My understanding is it's like an excellent eight hours and it's not even that much baseball, especially when I got off. But if you want to hear me on another podcast, that's a good way to start. I was on for like two hours and it flew by. I had a really good time. I also want to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, for all the great work he does. Lightning Lou, we love you, Ben. And that's pretty much it. I want to thank everyone for listening. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Y'all stay safe out there. This concludes our podcast day.